National Trust Magazine, Spring 2020. Hello and welcome to the Spring issue of National Trust Magazine. I'm Alan Power, Head Gardener at Stourhead in Wiltshire. I also present some of the National Trust podcasts. Today I'll be taking you through some of the highlights of the Spring magazine, including news, features and letters from Trust members. I'll also be chatting to some of the Trust staff, writers and experts who've contributed to this issue. To start with, we have Sally Palmer, editor of National Trust magazine, with her Spring letter. Thanks, Alan. And welcome to this audio edition of the Spring 2020 National Trust magazine, our 125th anniversary. We all want quiet. We all want beauty. We all need space. Unless we have it, we cannot reach that sense of quiet in which whispers of better things come to us gently. These words from 1883 were written by one of the Trust's co-founders, Octavia Hill. They ring as true now as they did then. I'm looking at the photograph on the cover that we've placed underneath the words of Octavia's quote. It's a beautiful picture of a beach at sunset. Two figures are silhouetted against a sunset sky. One has their arms flung wide in a moment of joy. The other is looking at the water. I feel I'm standing with them at the water's edge. I can almost smell the sea, almost hear their laughter echo across the wet sand. The natural beauty fills me with a calm sort of joy, Octavia's sense of quiet in which whispers of better things come to us gently. Octavia Hill, Robert Hunter and Hardwick Rawnsley together founded the National Trust on the 12th of January 1895. They shared a desire to protect the everyday beauty of places like this for everyone to enjoy, forever. In creating the trust, they were responding to the needs of their time, but what they set in motion seems as relevant as ever today. I hope you enjoy the articles in this anniversary edition, and that they inspire you to seek out your own moments of peace in nature, wherever you are. Thanks, Sally. That was National Trust magazine editor Sally Palmer with her spring letter. And now for the news roundup. Here's Olivia Vinol and Glenn McCready to tell you about what's been going on around the Trust. State of Nature The decline in wildlife in the UK is showing no signs of reversing, according to the recently released State of Nature 2019 report. The report found a 13% decline in the average abundance of wildlife since scientific monitoring began in the 1970s, with a fall in the numbers of 41% of species studied. Butterflies and moths fared particularly badly, down by 17% and 25% respectively. More than 26% of mammal species are now at risk of extinction, with the wildcat and the greater mouse-eared bat at particularly high risk. Nature and Science Director Rosie Hales commented, Humanity is at a crossroads when we need to pull together with actions rather than words. We need to halt and reverse the decline of those species at risk as well as protecting and creating new habitats in which they can thrive. The State of Nature report is produced every three years and is the most comprehensive assessment of how UK wildlife and land are faring. It is a collaborative effort by more than 70 wildlife organisations and this year, for the first time, government agencies. Read the full report at nbn.org.uk forward slash state of nature 2019. 
Unlocking History The National Trust is joining forces with the Alzheimer's Society to make our places dementia-friendly. Staff and volunteers can join the Society's dementia friends, and some Trust places will develop tours and events for those with dementia. At Wimpole in Cambridgeshire, a Farming Memories group encourages former farmers with dementia to meet and take part in farming activities. A slower flow. A pioneering project on the Honeycutt Estate in Somerset is returning a tributary of the River Aller back to the path it would have followed before any human interference. Allowing the tributary to meander will slow the water flow, which will help increase wildlife and reduce the risk of flooding. It's the first time this technique has been tried in the UK, and if successful it will be extended to a site on the River Aller itself. Fishy Business Part of a 1,800-year-old glass fish, the only one ever found in Britain, has been discovered at Chedworth Roman Villa in Gloucestershire. It comes from a fish-shaped bottle imported from the Black Sea, which may have been used to hold perfume. Trust archaeologist Nancy Grace says, This underlines that the Chedworth occupants were in touch with the furthest regions of the Roman Empire. Leap for Nature Trust staff and volunteers are putting the Leap Day on the 29th of February to good use by promising to help and enjoy nature throughout the year. Some of our promises include creating homes for wildlife, such as putting up a bird nest box and taking part in a beach clean. Fancy joining in? We'd love you to get involved. With almost 6 million members, together we can make a difference. Go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash leap for nature. Get Appy. Our National Trust app has been having some upgrades. As well as containing all the latest information you need for your visit, such as opening times, directions and amenities, you can also find events in the What's On section. New features include downloadable maps of properties, gardens and estates to use when you visit, filters to see only places that are open on a specific date, and a My Places section, in which you can make lists and wish lists of places and sync them to all your devices. Search for National Trust and download the app via the App Store for iPhones and iPad or Google Play for Android phones. And those were some highlights from the news section. Our next feature is from the Director General, Hilary McGrady. My favourite novel is Thomas Hardy's The Return of the Native. It opens with a vivid description of Egdon Heath, a fictional location in Wessex. The Trust's 80-hectare Sleep Heath in Dorset is as close as you will get to it in real life. It's an untamed landscape. Hardy describes how Egdon returned upon the memory of those who loved it with an aspect of peculiar and kindly congruity. The novel has resonated all of my life because I believe so passionately in the power of place. We return time and time again to the places we love. It's this same love of place that drove our founders to start the trust and is testament to its strength that we are still here all these years later. This month, we're celebrating a historic milestone for the National Trust, our 125th birthday. It's a big moment for all of us and I'd like to start by thanking you 
for your support. Whether you've just joined us or been with us for decades, we couldn't survive without you. Thank you. The celebration of major milestones prompts the question, what next? We've always been guided by our core purpose, to promote and protect places of historic and natural beauty for the benefit of the nation. One of the most remarkable things about the Trust is how this purpose endures through huge social and economic change. I think it'll continue to do so long into the future. This year, the Trust will be celebrating the incredible heritage and landscapes we look after and helping more people to find new ways to enjoy them. We'll also think about what the nation needs from us today. We know that nature is facing a crisis and this affects us all. It's so easy to feel powerless in the face of it. But our founders left a legacy of people prepared to roll up their sleeves and make change happen. So we're going to do more than ever before to help nature recover. We'll create more woodland, store more carbon and restore more rivers. And we'll welcome more people to help us. We're almost six million members strong now. Together, the small changes we all make add up to something far bigger. Our organisation has grown to be a national movement, bound by a shared belief in the power of places to enrich our lives. We have come so far, but I couldn't be more excited about how much further we can go. Thank you, Hilary McGrady, the Trust's Director General. And now we report on the 125th AGM of the National Trust, which was held at STEAM, Museum of the Great Western Railway in Swindon, on the 19th of October 2019. Neither England playing a Rugby World Cup match nor the Super Saturday Brexit debate deterred 380 members from attending the AGM or another 300 participating online. Our chair, Tim Parker, celebrated the broad range of opinions held by our 5.6 million members. It made the Trust all the richer, and he was proud to be chair of an institution with so many passionate people. He paid tribute to Simon Murray, who is retiring from the executive team after 32 years with the Trust, and to former council member Len Clark, who received the Octavia Hill Medal for his contribution and has recently died at the age of 103. Climate change shot to the top of the public agenda in 2018. Tim stressed that the Trust's response must be compatible with our core purpose of conserving what we protect forever, so our voice will be rooted in our practical experience. Besides addressing the impacts on farming and land use, we need to counter rising humidity in our houses. As we enter our 125th anniversary year, the Trust continues to respond to the changing needs of new generations, while keeping our core purpose as a guiding light. Though today's world is very different from that of our founders, common challenges remain, such as the need for open spaces in urban areas, which motivates our work helping to maintain parks. Our Director General, Hilary McGrady, stressed the value of a charity that stands for continuity, rooted in place, nature, history and beauty at a time of uncertainty and division. The importance of nature and beauty in people's lives is reflected in the individual stories of those who look after and enjoy trust places, such as the 400,000 people who use them for a range of sporting activities, 
It has been a year of highs and lows. Flooding at our places over Easter impacted revenue, but we have continued to make progress in all areas of our strategy. Our goal of making everyone welcome and engaging with a wider audience is reflected in such initiatives as the Sensory Garden, Community Space and Allotments at Tredega House in Newport and the Future Parks Accelerator to protect the UK's urban green spaces. We have invested record amounts in conservation this year, with £148 million spent on projects, including £20 million on the house and collections at Knoll in Kent, £3 million on Lindisfarne Castle in Northumberland and a revived kitchen garden at Mottisfont in Hampshire. Our mission to create or restore 25,000 hectares of nature-rich land is on target for completion by 2025. The Riverlands project is bringing waterways back to life through habitat restoration and footpath creation. Half the Trust's land relies on tenant farmers who face an uncertain outlook, and the Trust has been lobbying for an environment bill that rewards public benefits as well as sustainable farming. Climate change affects almost everything we do, and the Trust must respond. We are probably the last generation able to take meaningful action. In common with our founders, many young people believe that participation makes a difference. Hillary concluded that we must be ambitious to inspire more people to participate to help save nature in the years to come. Subjects of the many members' questions to the chair included HS2, dogs, overcrowding at properties, defibrillators, internships, badgers and carbon emissions. After lunch, the members' resolution proposing the Trust cease its partnership with Cadbury, owned by Mondelez, was debated. Arguments revolved around Mondelez's environmental and ethical record and its appropriateness as a partner, and whether the cost of breaking the contract was justified given its short remaining time. The resolution was not carried. The AGM ended with a panel debate on climate change, covering how the Trust can green its everyday operations, carbon capture on our land, disinvestment in fossil fuels, and better information about non-car access to properties. This was followed by members' suggestions, including more encouragement to use electric cars and a request for the annual report to provide information on progress in reducing the Trust's carbon footprint and the cost of climate change mitigation measures. The following members were elected to the Council. Doug Hullier, Deborah Lamb, Inga Grimsey, OBE, Michael Salter-Church, MBE, Simon Sansom and Sarah Hollingdale. For a recording of the event, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash features forward slash annual dash general dash meeting. In 1883, Octavia Hill, co-founder of the National Trust, said, We all want quiet. We all want beauty. We all need space. Unless we have it, we cannot reach that sense of quiet in which whispers of better things come to us gently. One of the passionate people helping protect these beautiful and natural spaces is the Trust's Director of Land and Nature, Mark Harold, who reflects on the calming and healing effect that spending time in nature can have on our well-being. Hanging outside the window of my office at home is a bird feeder. 
Right now I can see a blue tit, but I'm often visited by chaffinches and woodpeckers. It means that at any time I can look up and see beauty in nature. Each day it is a joy. As a keen gardener, you'll often find me with my hands dirty with soil, planting things, seeing them grow and watching nature take its course. My cabbages are often covered with caterpillars, but I don't mind. I'd rather have the butterflies than the spring greens. Nature can take us to a different place because it doesn't react to the same stresses or technological demands as we do. For me, looking away from the screen to watch birds, feeling bare earth on my fingers, or getting out for a walk to feel the rain on my face and the wind in my hair is rejuvenating. I've been lucky to spend the last thirty years trying to protect the landscapes and wildlife that bring such joy to me and to so many others. Nature really does thrive when you nurture it, and many trust places have a richness and diversity of species that is lacking in most areas of the country. The gentle hum of pollinators around abundant flower and plant life is an experience everyone should be able to enjoy. But this natural environment is under threat. The State of Nature 2019 report, produced by over 70 organisations to present an overview of how the country's wildlife is faring, paints a sobering picture. Since 1970, 41% of UK species studied have fallen with the steepest losses happening in the last ten years. That is why we're doing everything we can to protect wildlife and create new habitats in which they and we can thrive. Research has shown that being connected to nature can increase our sense of well-being and make us happier, fitter and more satisfied. Spending time in nature can help lower levels of anxiety and stress, helping us cope better with challenging modern lifestyles. Today, 125 years after the National Trust was founded, I think Octavia Hill's words of 1883 remain as true now as they were then. Now we hear how some of our staff, volunteers and members find moments in nature that uplift them. Pam Smith has loved spending time in nature since childhood. Now as a Trust Gardens and Parks consultant in the Midlands, she reflects on her favourite spring moments. An April downpour is my favourite time to be outside. I've created a seat in my garden where I can sit snugly and watch the spring showers. To me, rain is nature's polish for tree bark, and it's nature's jeweller too. I love watching the beads of water that thread together on the tips of twigs. Time moves quickly at this time of year. Seemingly overnight, the tree canopies start to turn green and cast shade until the last tree the ash unfurls its leaves. I think spring is the sight of blue skies, yellow flowers and jewel-green buds, and the chiming percussion of stones on rake as I prepare seed beds. I love the smell of damp earth mingled with the scent of a warm greenhouse, stacked with seed trays and plant labels. I'm fortunate to know I need nature to gain peace and energy. Nature is surprisingly easy to find, even in the city where I now live. If I feel overwhelmed, I take time to be outside. When my dad died, I sat and reflected on a park bench. I run past that bench now, red-faced but invigorated in my couch-to-5K efforts. I've always felt this way about the outdoors. I grew up on small holdings in Anglesey in Wales, 
and spent time living in a caravan, so nature features heavily in my early memories. As a child, I chose the chores that meant I could be outside. I often chose the long route on my walk back from the school bus stop. Later, I spent my holiday job wages on bird and wildflower identification books. Now, when I smell the coconut scent of gorse, I'm reminded of the darting rabbits of my childhood home. I'm drawn to interactions with nature where I can see and feel a human touch. A garden, a public park, a tree avenue or a walk along an old fence line can comfort me and pique my curiosity. I like the idea of someone having been there before me. Trust member Mal Emerson from Neath, Port Talbot, found walking the coast gave him solace after a workplace accident. He remembers... My life changed 23 years ago when my leg was caught in a drum at work as I was repairing a conveyor belt. After the accident, it took me nearly five years to be able to walk just a couple of hundred metres. My mentality was to try to walk to just one more lamppost every day. Now I can't believe how far I can walk. The accident broke my body, but it also broke my mind. Severe post-traumatic stress disorder took over my life, and I completely lost myself. The mental scars just wouldn't go away. These days, when the trauma kicks in, I go walking to lose the memories. Nature is my medication, and I thrive by being in the outdoors. I go up into the hills of Brecon, or down to the beach at the Gower, and just lose myself in the landscape. It's just so inspirational. The scenery is breathtaking. I feel as though the sea is in my soul. One day, I decided to share my story on Facebook about how walking has helped my health both physically and mentally. I wrote, If anyone wants to join me, I'll meet you at the end of the pier. When I arrived, there were 16 men waiting there, and I thought, there must be something in this. Now I've founded Mal's Marauders Men's Health Charity, where, through walk and talk events, we unite men to share their experiences and shed the social stigma of mental health while getting fitter on walks in wonderful places. Men can be stubborn and seldom talk about their health, but the walk and talk group has broken that barrier. Walking together has created a sense of belonging, and we'll always make time to stop and have a cup of tea and share stories. It's quite powerful. And we're doing things we thought we'd never do again. When we go walking at Rosilli and the Three Cliffs, my friends and I are totally in awe of the place. It's a rugged area of outstanding natural beauty. We'll be on a high for weeks after walking there. Mental health and the outdoors go hand in hand. If you can get out there, you'll feel the wind on your skin, the sea spray on your face. To me, the outdoors is the best antidepressant you can get. Joe Ashman lives out his childhood dreams every day by climbing into the canopy as part of his job as a tree surgeon at Starhead in Wiltshire. He says... My dad always said I was never happier as a child than when I was climbing a tree. Later in life, when I found out that you could actually get a job climbing them, it was a dream come true. Now I'm a tree surgeon based at Stourhead in Wiltshire, where everybody knows me as the tree guy, and I get to climb some of the most magnificent trees in the world. A tree surgeon is somebody who cares for trees. I look at their structure to make sure they're safe and make plans for their future care. One way to keep them healthy is to reduce the tree in size and weight by precise and sympathetic pruning. 
The tree surgery and climbing equipment available now makes this delicate pruning possible, as I can climb all over the tree using ropes and harnesses and trim with super-light chainsaws. I can extend the life of a mature tree by up to a century by pruning it in the right way, and I get to be a small but significant part of that tree's life. When you get up into the canopy, it's a whole different world. You can hear the birds all around you and feel the leaves and branches moving gently in the breeze. I can lose myself up there. It's just so peaceful. I get to climb up some of the oldest trees in the country, some of which have never been climbed, so there are views that only I have ever seen. That's pretty cool. Beech trees are spectacular to climb. They can grow to twice the size of an average house, so they're absolutely vast when you climb into the canopy. I love that they're one of the UK's most common trees, so you can see their beautiful boughs everywhere. The trees are why I love my job, because no two are the same. Each one has a different shape and size. They're always interesting, they're always challenging, and it's always fun to spend time around them. We often look at trees from eye level, but I'd encourage people to stop below a canopy and gaze up once in a while. Being near trees and admiring them can make you feel as though you're a part of them. Volunteer urban ranger Arjun Dutta finds birdwatching at his patch, Mordenhall Park in London, brings him peace and calm. He says, Next time you see a storm gathering, take a minute to look in its direction. Because if you're lucky, you might see flocks of hundreds of birds flying overhead. I once counted over 800 house martins descending, which was a mind-blowing spectacle. I've been interested in birds since I was seven. It was after I took part in the RSPB Big Garden Bird Watch, where you count birds in your garden to help monitor wildlife trends. Shortly after, I visited Langkawi, an island in Malaysia, with my family. We met a group of inspirational naturalists who took us birdwatching each morning. They showed us the most amazing bird life, such as hornbills and sunbirds, as well as butterflies and reptiles. I couldn't have asked for anything more, and I've been hooked on birding ever since. Morden Hall Park is my patch in birdwatching terms. When I'm feeling a bit stressed out or have a lot on my plate, I go there for a walk and to spot some birds. Even if I don't see much bird life that day, I feel calmer and more relaxed and can take a step back from everything. I'm one of the urban rangers there. We're a group of young volunteers who help improve the woodland, reed beds and meadow habitats for nature. It's a surprisingly good spot for migrating birds. I often see thrushes, swallows and swifts making their journey to or from faraway lands. I'm amazed to imagine some of these tiny birds flying such long distances. The world would be a really dull place if it weren't for birdsong. The nightingale and swift are my favourites, and they have the most beautiful songs. I haven't got great eyesight, so for me, it's amazing to listen to the birds. Even if all I can see is a small speck in the sky, I'll be able to hear the sound. I'd love to see more interaction with nature in schools. Education can be stressful, and I think nature can help. Spending time pond-dipping or bird-watching could help children learn skills to cope better with stress for the rest of their lives. Heidi Reynolds is a volunteer wildlife ranger at Lizard Point in Cornwall. 
She moved to Cornwall having been diagnosed with a neurological disorder when she was just 37 and she medically retired from her career with the Metropolitan Police. Heidi loves to spread the joy of watching wildlife and has joined us today to tell us all about it. Heidi, it's lovely to talk to you today and can you just briefly tell us about your role at Lizard Point? What is it you do there? Um, I'm a volunteer wildlife ranger. I have been for nearly two years now. Basically, people wander down to um, Lizard Point, which is the most southerly point of mainland UK. It's a very unique place. We get really unique um, flora, fauna that just doesn't grow or exist anywhere else. I've seen you stand there looking out uh, you know, across the sea through binoculars yeah. and telescopes, and that's yeah. part of your role, isn't it? Yeah, completely. I mean, I park my car by, by the big lighthouse there, I come through the tamarisk trees and bang, you've just literally hit with this incredible vista across the sea. And I love the people interaction as much as the wildlife interaction, as well as just generally connecting with outdoors. Could you tell us, Heidi, what you see through your telescope when you cast it from Lizard Point? We see lots of different things. The main questions we kind of get asked are around cormorants and shags and the difference between the two. So, for example, with shags, there's a simple thing I always remember is the three S's, that they're smaller they're more likely to be at sea um, and they're slimmer um, than a cormorant um, and that's quite a good way to try and identify them. Um, Chuffs is obviously our big excitement yeah. here, um, you know, disappeared um, and then returned around 2001 um, and we've actually, you know, we've, they've raised around 32 young, I believe it is, in that time, um, one of the nesting pairs and they're increasing in number all the time. The most easy way to recognise them is through their red legs and red beak but one of the other ways is when they're flying, they're incredibly acrobatic. And the other thing is that at the end of their wings, they're like fingers. And whereas the other birds will keep them open for a little while while they're flying, a chuff keeps them open all the time. Oh, OK. Since your diagnosis, do you, do you find that living somewhere like that has been much better for your life and much better for you? Certainly for me. I mean, I, I absolutely adore going down to the beach at first light. You know, so getting outdoors isn't just a summer activity. It's an all-year-round activity. I was diagnosed with a, a neurological condition when I was 37. And it's an opportunity for me to put my red T-shirt on and just be me. And I love it. Thank you so much, Heidi. It sounds like your role makes a massive difference to both visitors and wildlife. Volunteering like Heidi can be a great way to explore beautiful places, make new friends and learn new skills while helping the Trust's cause. If you have a spare afternoon, you might like to pitch in with a beach clean and enjoy a seaside walk while helping to keep the coast clear for wildlife and visitors alike. If you have more time to spare, there are hundreds of roles to choose from. For the green-fingered, the passionate historian and everyone in between, find out how to get involved by visiting nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash ways dash to dash volunteer. As the Trust celebrates 125 years of looking after beautiful, natural and historic places for the nation, Director General Hilary McGrady is here to introduce the three remarkable people who made it happen. So Hilary, can we start at the very beginning? Who were the people who formed the National Trust? And what do you think brought them together? The three founders were Octavia Hill, Sir Robert Hunter and Canon Hardwick Ronsley. They were an inspirational threesome, uh, united in the belief that beautiful, natural and historic places were worth protecting for future generations. And they were responding to what was then the rising tide of industrialisation. And in their view, this was threatening to sweep away a way of life that people were connected to their natural environment. And they wanted to do something about that. 
Um, Hillary, that was 125 years ago. They came together to form this amazing path that we've been on. Do you think that we're kind of grappling with the same issues today? Absolutely. It feels almost as if we've come full circle because the trust was based around the natural environment, around landscape and around nature. And we've come through many phases of looking after country houses and looking after uh, coastland. But in fact, it is nature that is in crisis now. And I think our founders would want us to be rising to that challenge. And we look after over 500 historic places, you know, 250,000 hectares of amazing countryside. Do you think they'd be proud of what we've achieved? I don't think they would have had any notion of how huge we would be now or how successful in many respects we have been in caring for the places that they wanted us to care for. So I think they would be very, very proud. But I also think, knowing the three characters as they do, having read about them, I think they'd want us to go further. And I think they would want us to step up to the challenge that we have facing us in terms of climate change, but in particular, the loss of nature and and the environment around us. And you're at the start of the next 125 years of the National Trust. Um, Where do you hope it will go and what do you think it will achieve? My hope for my legacy is that we really will have done something about restoring nature to, to its former glory. But I think the other thing I'm really interested in is making sure that we are a movement that the whole country can be part of. I want more people to be engaged in looking after their environment, the places that are special to them, not just the ones the National Trust own, but the special places that are on their doorstep. Hilary, thank you so much. And now we discover more about the Trust's founders. First, we investigate Octavia Hill, 1838 to 1912. Her co-founders regarded social campaigner and philanthropist Octavia not only as their intellectual leader, but as the moral engine behind their work. Biographer Peter Clayton, chairman of the Octavia Hill Birthplace Museum Trust in Wisbeach in Cambridgeshire, reflects on her remarkable life. Octavia Hill was an extraordinary person. She laid down markers for so many life-changing initiatives that we take for granted nowadays. Social work and housing, the idea of art and beauty for everyone, the protection of green spaces in cities. She was born in Wisbeach in Cambridgeshire in 1838, part of an extended family. Her parents, James and Caroline Hill, were followers of Robert Owen a founder of utopian socialism, and Octavia spent her life trying to show that their vision of a better world, where everybody cooperated, could be realised. When she was 14, Octavia was put in charge of the workroom at the Ladies' Guild, a Christian socialist cooperative in London managed by her mother, where the ragged schoolgirls made toys and dolls' house furniture. Seeing the reality of the poverty of those girls, was life-changing for Octavia. She organised a midday meal for her workers, visited them when they were sick, and took them on nature study walks around the London commons and open spaces. One account tells of Octavia emerging from the countryside, followed by a troop of ragged toy makers, happy and flushed, each with an armful of bluebells. She met art critic and social thinker John Ruskin while working there, and her direct experience made her Ruskin's chief reporter on the miseries of London life. When Ruskin inherited an income of £4,000 a year in 1864 and asked Octavia what she would do with the money, she said she would provide better homes for the poor. 
Ruskin bought three houses in London's Paradise Place, a street full of overcrowded housing known as Little Hell, and handed management to Octavia. She developed a progressive and friendly style of management, personally visiting her tenants weekly to collect rent and ensuring the buildings were kept in good repair. She was keen to profile her work as business rather than charity, persuading the wealthy to accept a lower 5% return on their investment rather than the 12% achievable through overcrowding. She then ploughed the money back into the community in consultation with the tenants. By 1874, Octavia and a team of volunteers managed over 3,000 tenancies around London. She believed that outdoor space, fresh air, and the joy of plants were vital in everyone's life, not a luxury only for the rich, and she worked to provide gardens for the homes. At her second property, Freshwater Place, she cleared a rubbish-strewn courtyard to make a playground with trees. In 1877, she and her sister Miranda formed the Curl Society, with the aim of bringing beauty, nature, arts and music to the people. As London's growth continued unchecked, engulfing fields and recreational urban space, Octavia's attention turned to saving London's green spaces. Her first campaign to save Swiss cottage fields in 1875 failed, but it brought her into contact with Robert Hunter, solicitor for the Commons Preservation Society. Although their later campaign successfully saved Parliament Hill Fields, Vauxhall Park and Hilly Fields, Octavia and Robert were both very aware that their long-term future was not secure. Forming the National Trust in 1895 was the logical extension of the work they were doing, and it changed that for good. During her campaign for Swiss Cottage Fields, Octavia had referred to a green belt, one of the first recorded uses of the term. Even into her final years, she was campaigning to secure the land and footpaths around her adopted home of Kent. Octavia died in 1912, but her legacy lives on in her enduring impact on social housing and work, not just in the UK, but around the world. The remarkable range of green spaces Londoners are able to enjoy, and of course the National Trust itself. I don't think Octavia would be at all surprised to see how the Trust has grown today. She knew it had a major life force behind it. Next, we consider the life of Sir Robert Hunter, 1844 to 1913, where his co-founders provided much of the fire and passion that drove the movement in its early years, lawyer and solicitor Robert turned that energy into legal reality. Biographer Ben Cowell is Director General of Historic Houses. He researched and wrote the first biography of Robert Hunter while working at the National Trust and shares his findings with us. I think of Robert Hunter as the inventor of the National Trust. He may have lacked the poetic words of Canon Hardwick Rawnsley or the campaigning zeal of Octavia Hill, but he had the foresight to set something up that he knew would be needed by the nation, which until then nobody else had dreamt up. Without Robert, there wouldn't have been a National Trust in the same way. Despite this, Robert's contribution is largely under-recognised. He was a different character from Octavia and Hardwick, who were both very public figures. He was a modest man who didn't seek the limelight, but he felt very passionately about heritage and open spaces, 
Robert was born in London in 1844 and grew up a studious and serious young man. After university, he became a lawyer and was quickly taken on by the newly formed Commons Preservation Society as their solicitor. He soon became the country's expert on law relating to commons and open spaces, which were under real threat in the second half of the 19th century. In 1882, Robert was made solicitor to the General Post Office, a role he held for the last 30 years of his life. He spent his weekends continuing to work for the Commons Preservation Society and advising people like Octavia Hill on their work in the protection of open spaces. His and Octavia's conversations about how to protect endangered places gave Robert the idea to set up the National Trust. In doing so, he created an organisation that could own places on behalf of the nation, a power other conservation organisations lacked. Once designated in trust care, these places could not be mortgaged or sold. Although the trust was incredibly small, with just a scattering of properties and a few staff, Robert had big ambitions for what it could achieve. That the trust is now one of the largest landowners in the country is down to his foresight in those early days. The story goes that Octavia wrote to Robert proposing the name the Commons and Gardens Trust, and Robert replied to her suggesting the words National Trust. I think he knew it wouldn't just be about commons and nice gardens, but could encompass all sorts of places. That's why he ensured that the Trust's purpose was written very broadly, to give it the powers to own whatever sort of places its trustees felt were of historic interest or natural beauty. His vision became a reality in 1895 when he, Octavia and Hardwick, formally established the Trust. As its first chair, Robert was the legal force behind the National Trust Act of 1907, that put its constitution into an Act of Parliament. Although the Act has been amended at various points over time, its essence has never changed. The essential powers of the Trust to own places in an inalienable sense, forever and for everyone, remain exactly as they were when he set it up. Sadly, after a life dedicated to work, Robert died just a few months after leaving the post office and never enjoyed a lengthy retirement walking the hills of his native Surrey. I'm sure he would be amazed to see how the trust has evolved. I think he'd have been particularly proud of the way it has preserved so many areas of common land and open spaces, free for anyone to access, which was his enduring passion. And finally, we hear about Canon Hardwick Rawnsley, 1851-1920. His co-founders brought the experience, the social contacts and the legal acumen, but it was Hardwick who added the zeal that proved to be the vital raising agent. Vivian Griffiths is Hardwick's biographer and has lived in Ray Village. Canon Hardwick Rawnsley was always involved in everything. If there was a fate, he was opening it. If there was a committee, he was on it. If there was an election, he was in it. I see him as the Trust's first true campaigner. Hardwick was born in Oxfordshire, the son of a parish priest. As a young man, he was enthusiastic and excitable, but meeting social reformer John Ruskin while he was studying at Oxford University awakened his social conscience. It led him to work as a lay preacher in Soho, where he met Octavia Hill and, through her, Robert Hunter, 
though it would be another twenty years before they would form the National Trust. In 1878, Hardwick took up the vicarage of the tiny parish of Ray on the shores of Windermere in the Lake District. He became increasingly concerned about industrialization in the Lake District, particularly the building of railways and roads and the creation of reservoirs in the valleys, and he was determined to protect its beauty for the whole nation. This was his inspiration, I think. When he read about a proposed railway from Honister to Braithwaite, he leapt into action, writing letters to influential people, organizing meetings, and forming committees. Within eight weeks, the storm of protest contributed to the bill being withdrawn, and Hardwick became a local and national hero almost overnight. However, he knew that this wouldn't be the last of the threats to the Lake District's beauty, so in 1883 he set up the Lake District Defence Society. Despite its good work, the question remained what to do to protect the Lake District's land long term. It was answered in 1895, when Hardwick, Robert and Octavia held the first public meeting of the National Trust, with Hardwick as Honorary Secretary. Hardwick enthusiastically spearheaded many fundraising campaigns for Lake District places during the Trust's early years, including Brandlehow, its first Lake District acquisition. His contribution was such that when Hardwick was seriously considering taking the bishopric of Madagascar in 1898, Octavia begged him to stay for the sake of the Trust. His enduring friendship with Beatrix Potter left another great legacy for the Trust. They both felt it was their job to preserve the Lake District, and that they could do that together in a very effective way. When Beatrix became a landowner, Hardwick often advised her on which farms to buy to make access impossible for developers. When she died in 1943, she left 14 farms and 1,619 hectares of protected land in the Lake District to the Trust. Hardwick's belief in living simply and close to nature kept him in the lakes for the rest of his life, despite frequent railway trips to the Trust's office in London. After suffering a major heart attack in spring 1920, he spent his final few months watching the wildlife from his bed at Allen Bank, his Grasmere home, after the death of his wife Edith, which he left to the Trust. It is in the Lake District that Hardwick's legacy can be most strongly felt today. In his centenary year, we remember how his tireless campaigning began the ongoing work of protecting this special landscape for future generations to enjoy. What inspirational stories and what a legacy to have left. Now we discuss a changing climate. National Specialist for Climate Change, Keith Jones, explores how places in the Trust's care are being affected by climate change and what we're doing to rise to the challenge. I've spent almost 20 years working for the Trust, first as a warden on Snowdon in Gwynedd and more recently as the National Specialist for Climate Change. Over that time, I've noticed changes creeping into the environments I help to look after. Walking to my office at Penryn Castle in Gwynedd, I observe that daffodils on the route are flowering a little earlier each year. I hear from our teams in County Antrim that increasingly high winds mean they're obliged to close the famous Carricareed Rope Bridge to visitors more frequently. A conservator at Durham near Bath remarks that the surface of a painting from the collection 
has blistered in the summer heat. These events might seem small in isolation, but taken together, they're signs of the long-anticipated wider concern about a changing climate. We have a duty to look after the places in our care, for everyone, forever, and climate change is the single biggest threat to them. In 2015, the Trust published Forecast Changeable, a report updated from a 2006 paper of the same name to reflect the evolving and worsening situation. It set out the importance of the Trust finding new ways to manage our places in the face of a changing climate. In our strategy document, Playing Our Part, also published in 2015, the Trust recognised that climate change now poses the single biggest threat to our places. We must find ways to adapt. Last summer, the climate change team met with the Trust's executive team to discuss how we should respond to the current climate emergency and what our role can be in tackling climate change. We could have gone to one of many places where the effects are obvious, Burling Gap in East Sussex, for instance, parts of which are falling into the sea due to coastal erosion, or one of the many places in the Lake District still feeling the legacy of Storm Desmond in 2015-16. Instead, we held the session at Ham House, a 17th-century mansion in Surrey. It too is struggling from the effects of climate change, and the challenges it faces are across the trust. The week before we met, the house had to close to visitors for the first time ever, as its internal temperature had peaked at 40 degrees Celsius. Not only are such temperatures unsafe for our visitors, staff and volunteers, but they are detrimental to the important collection and the fabric of the building itself. Outdoors, the garden team reports more pests and diseases having a more serious impact on the plants. They're facing increasingly difficult curatorial decisions, as planting that has existed for centuries may no longer be able to thrive in future. For example, the fungal disease box blight, made worse by wetter and humid conditions, is now endemic in the stunning box hedges here. As anyone who lives near the River Don will be more than well aware, flooding is becoming less predictable and more frequent. At Lyme in Cheshire, clean-up and fundraising is still ongoing following the deluge last August. So what action are we taking? Much of our work already touches on climate change issues. We have a successful renewable energy investment program that continues to drastically reduce our reliance on fossil fuels and our target of meeting 50% of our energy needs from our own estate by 2021 is well within reach. Meanwhile, our Riverlands project is helping to restore the health of rivers and their surrounding landscapes and reduce flooding. At Hunnicutt in Somerset, work is underway on a tributary of the River Aller to restore it to its path before human interference. Meanwhile, the Green Academies project is helping young people to make a difference for nature in urban areas. It's a global problem, and we've not been working in isolation. The Trust is a member of the recently launched Global Climate Heritage Network, a worldwide group of organisations that believe heritage to be suffering from climate change factors and are taking steps to help. The network uses examples and solutions from all over the world to help make decisions. We also host the Fit for the Future network, which shares best practice between other organisations on sustainability.
including climate change. Hundreds of Fit for the Future members swap information about their organization's sustainability projects and work together to find the best solutions for environmental challenges. We know that there is much more to do. Over the coming years, we'll be planting more woodland, using more of our land to sequester carbon, take carbon out of the air, and helping our places adapt to climate change. As we make progress, we will be sharing our climate change stories through our properties and website, and using our experience on the ground to advocate for climate change solutions. For instance, this year we are sending representatives to the United Nations Climate Change Summit. There's no doubt that climate change is challenging us, along with so many others. I'm encouraged by how many people and organisations are declaring and committing to the climate emergency. We all now need to start lowering our impact on a changing world and making adaptations. Together, we can still make a difference. For more information on the Trust's work to help combat climate change, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash climate change. Ickworth in Suffolk is undergoing a £5 million conservation project. While the work is carried out, the team is staying true to the mansion's creative past, transforming parts of it into a contemporary art installation and putting some of its treasures, quite literally, under the spotlight. This article was written by Sue Hardman. An 80-metre-high crane is advancing on Ickworth's Italianate Rotunda. It's been touch and go as to whether the crane can start work, as buffeting winds, giant metal equipment and a precious heritage building do not a good mix make. But today is calm. I watch as the crane, twice the height of the rotunda, slowly lowers its load. Bit by bit, the dome disappears under a glittering web of scaffolding. The rest of the building is already swathed in poles, its famous curves transformed into a perfect metal box. Getting the scaffold into place is a key moment in Ickworth Uncovered, the £5 million undertaking to mend leaks, add lightning protection and retile the roof of the famous rotunda and the East Wing Link Corridor area. It's the biggest conservation project ever undertaken at Ickworth, not least because it's required 2,500 items to be temporarily moved from storage and rehomed. Rather than closing the mansion while the work takes place, the team is following the lead of other recent trust multi-million pound roof conservation projects, such as the Vine in Hampshire and Durham near Bath, by making the most of the temporarily changed spaces. Visitors are being invited not only to see the conservation work in action, but to enjoy specially commissioned new artworks. Inside, where the daylight has been stolen by the lacing of poles and boards, the darkness has been embraced, and treasures, and rarely seen pieces, spotlit in a bold new way. Outdoors, international artist Pablo Bronstein is making a powerful interpretive piece based around Ickworth's architecture. The Herveys, Ickworth's art-loving creators, and surely one of the UK history's more rock-and-roll dynasties, would, I sense, be intrigued. It was Frederick Augustus Hervey, 4th Earl of Bristol, and an unlikely bishop, who rarely went to church, 
who created Ickworth House. Known as the Earl Bishop, he was rich and flamboyant, with a hunger for art and travel. He wanted a show home that would double as a gallery for his treasures. Building began in 1795 to designs by Italian architect Mario Asprucci the Younger, but things didn't go well. Three years later, the Earl Bishop's art collection, yet to reach the UK, was confiscated in Rome by Napoleon's troops. In 1803, the Earl Bishop died abroad, his house project unseen and only the rotunda built. This left his son, the fifth Earl, also Frederick, to continue his father's unlikely vision of an Italianate palace of fine art in rural East England. It took 47 years to complete, and the fifth Earl went on to amass a second art collection. Symmetry was all in 19th century Italianate architecture, and at Ickworth, this was realised with an architectural conceit of admirable scale. A whole false wing, the West Wing, was created as a shell, there purely for show and to balance the building visually, with the rotunda in the middle and the East Wing on the other side. The Hervey family moved into the East Wing in 1829, and the rotunda was used mainly to display their collections and to entertain. The West Wing simply remained empty apart from being used as a granary and at one point containing a squash court, until the Trust opened it as the West Wing Visitor Centre in 2005. Today, Ickworth's collection is of museum quality. Among its paintings are works by Titian, Velasquez, Kaufman and Gainsborough. The library is one of the Trust's finest, and the silver and ceramics are of national significance. With such treasures in its collection, Ickworth's leaking roof has been of particular concern. Project manager Andrew Rosen has been overseeing the ambitious project to make the building watertight and finding imaginative ways for visitors to experience what's happening. He has joined us today to explain what's been going on at Ickworth. Andrew, so you're, you've got the lovely job title of project manager at Ickworth at the moment, but actually you're project managing something quite sensitive and quite um, innovative by what I've read so far. It's got a leaky roof, hasn't it? And the project is called Ickworth Uncovered. Why is that? As you rightly noticed, there is a leaky roof. Um, there's a few different roofs that we are uncovering to repair. And we've been really keen as part of this project, not just to physically uncover the building, to do the work we need to do, but to really use this opportunity to show people things that they don't normally get to see. And Icarus Uncovered is a really nice little title that seems to sort of encompass both those elements of what we're up to. I've got some facts and figures here. There's kind of 42 tonnes of slate, 7,000 tiles or something like that. Is that right? That, that's entirely right. It's, uh, it's quite some undertaking. Um, and that's only a small part of the, the works we're doing, to be honest. But looking yeah. after a building like this for, for perpetuity is the National Trust is duty-bound to do, there's always work that we need to undertake. But what I, what I find fascinating as well is, you know, we're, we're doing it modern day with proper scaffolding and cranes and lorries and trucks, but somebody did it in the 1700s, didn't they? When the roof was originally built, really, there's certainly the domed rotunda roof. When you're inside the, the attic space, it's like being inside the hull of a ship with the huge oak beams and oak boarding. And we kind of believe that that was the sort of type of craftsman they would use. They would have used boat builders, given yeah. that we are in Suffolk, to do that sort of structure. The slates that you talked about, so as you say, um, somebody described the roof uh, to the rotunda as being like half cantaloupe melon. So it's uh, <laughs> an oval in plan and it's a dome. So it's quite an odd shape. And then it's tiled with slates, which are 
squared, square and flat. Stone. <laughs> Indeed. So trying to make that shape out of slate is not easy. So each one of these slates is individually cut by hand so that Amazing. they can both taper upwards and they curve round. But the tiles I find really interesting because you're, you're using the tiles as well to give visitors a really lovely way of becoming part of the history of Ickworth, aren't you? So we've got an um, initiative called Imprint on Ickworth. Uh, where for a small donation, people can leave a signature, a message, a drawing, whatever they like to inscribe on the reverse side of one of these slates that will actually be installed on the new roof. And we've had some really great stories of coming out, people whose family historically worked at the site, leaving messages in, in dedication to them. And it's really brilliant to be able to sort of encapture these stories physically on the building. And is it possible for visitors to get uh, up close to the roof, you know, to get onto the roof on the scaffolding, that kind of thing? So we've got live cameras up on the roof that both show close up the work that's happening and also show you the amazing view from the top of the roof because we are the tallest inhabited structure in the whole of Suffolk. And from that rooftop, you can see allegedly all the way to Ely Cathedral on a clear day. So um, that's a really unique perspective that you never normally get to see of Ickworth or from Ickworth. Andrew, could you tell us a little bit about the contemporary art that has been commissioned at Ickworth? We're really so, so happy. We're working with, with the help of the Art Council, we're working with Pablo Bronstein, a British Argentinian artist of international renown. And this feels really in keeping with, with Ickworth's history. Um, the old bishop who commissioned Ickworth was a huge collector and commissioner of, of artworks in his time. And equally, Pablo's installation really feels like a nice companion piece to kind of bring out some of those stories and communicate them in a slightly different way. His installation is external and I believe there's some work going on internally as well with another um, group of artists. Within the house there's some amazing architectural and artistic features and collection items. So we've been working with a design team called the Decorators along with um, lighting designers called Studio Decker to really use this project and the darkness and the atmospheric nature of Ickworth to really showcase these specific items of the architecture of the building and from the collection within the overall central idea that Ickworth is truly a home of great art, both of architecture and of collection items. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Ickworth Uncovered is open to visitors from the 18th of January until late May. Further details can be found at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Ickworth forward slash Ickworth dash uncovered. Now, I'm delighted to welcome Francis Bailey, lead curator for Northern Ireland, who has joined us for one of our favourite features, an object I love. So, Francis, could you tell us about the object you have chosen and what makes it so exceptional for you? It's a brass, polished brass microscope. Um, it stands about um, ooh, well over 18 inches high, made by Andrew Ross of London in 1843. Um, and his microscope was a gift from the Reverend Now, this was a gift, and we all get gifts as kids, you know, that we um, say thank you very much, put in the cupboard, and think no more of. But actually, Mary went on quite a remarkable path with this, didn't she? She did, she did. She, she was already a, a, a very gifted natural scientist. She enjoyed studying butterflies and beetles out in the garden, and she used the microscope on a daily basis, and it travelled with her wherever she went throughout the rest of her life. And um, she used it to... Uh, not only study the natural world, but she was a very gifted artist as well. So she drew what she saw. 
And she ended up illustrating many of the books for the leading astronomers, indeed, and microscopists of the time. And it was it wasn't easy to balance things back then, was it? Because Mary, Mary was married; she was uh, she was a mother, and she had all of that stuff to do as well as following this amazing gift and passion that she had, didn't she? She uh, ha- had indeed. She married a chap called Henry Ward, and that's how uh, we in the National Trust in in Northern Ireland are associated with Mary, because Henry Ward became the fifth Viscount Bangor at Castle Ward in County Down, and some of her uh, uh, belongings, including the microscope, have survived at Castle Ward and, and we treasure them. So Frances Mary was given extremely rare access to the Royal Observatory as well, wasn't she? She was. She was uh, one of the very few people to gain access to it and it was, it was because of her great reputation as a, a serious uh, woman of science at the time. And, uh, I mean, women were just not allowed into the observatory. You had to get very special permission. Amazing. And she went on to receive the transactions of the Royal Astronomical Society as well, didn't she? That's that's quite correct, and she was only one of three at the time to get them. The other two were Queen Victoria herself and a Mrs. Mary Somerville, who was also an, an amazing woman in Scotland. And so uh, only those three women, Mary Somerville, Mary Ward and Queen Victoria, were um, allowed to receive the transactions of the Royal Astronomical Society. I didn't know this woman before I started reading, before we chatted um, Francis, and it's it's amazing her story, but it's quite moving because she kind of she met quite a tragic end, didn't she? She did, and and this is one of the things that really um, pulls at my heartstrings. Um, uh, in in eighteen sixty nine, she was visiting her cousins the Rosses at Burr Castle. One of their projects was to build a steam car, and so a pile of them got onto this one day. Off they set on this great adventure, and sadly there was a turn in the road and a, a jolt to the machine, and Mary fell off it, and she was crushed beneath the wheels. And she was only 42, Frances, wasn't she? Only 42. She had her, her youngest boy, Maxwell, who went on to become the sixth Viscount Bangor, was only about a year at the time. Um, you know, she was full of, of love for her children. She was enjoying their childhood. Um, she was a woman full of life. It's, um, it, it's amazing, Frances. You know, my, my eyes have just gone back to looking at the picture of the microscope you know that you described so well at the start and it tells an amazing story about an amazing woman who went too quickly but left a wonderful legacy for us all so francis thanks a million for joining us today and thank you for sharing mary ward's story with us mary ward's microscope and drawings are on show at castle ward this year francis will also be hosting a talk about mary ward and her microscope at castle ward on saturday the 14th of march 2020 For full details and to book a place, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash castle dash ward forward slash watts dash on. Now it's time to hear from you. Jane Kirk in Suffolk describes how Southall inspired her. Your article, Reimagining the Workhouse, Autumn 2019, reminded me how a visit to Southall to see it seven years ago sparked off my now addictive hobby. I live in a former workhouse in Tattingstone, Suffolk, now 33 private houses. After that visit, I wondered how many people would know the history of this imposing building in a fairly small village. In a nutshell, it inspired me to champion the creation of a visitor information board and then, to commemorate its 250th anniversary, I organised an exhibition and tree planting. 
Currently, I'm involved with the Suffolk Record Office's project Sharing Suffolk Stories on lost communities of which our village is one. Having lost homes and farms when a valley was flooded to create a reservoir, I will be recording the memories of people who have lived in the village a long time. Snippets of these are to be used in our red phone box when it is converted into a heritage talking box. So thank you to Southall and the National Trust for steering me towards this most enjoyable and rewarding path. Eric Holder in West Yorkshire reminisces about his archaeological work at Sutton Hoo. It was so nice to read about Sutton Hoo in the recent issue. My wife, Joan, and I were recruited in 1967 to work there on the site of the famous Mound One to complete the archaeological work begun in 1939. I became an excavation supervisor while Joan worked in the recording and admin team. Both of us worked under the leading archaeologists Dr. Rupert Bruce Mitford and Paul Ashby. The seasons spent at Sutton Hoo were momentous. I was privileged to be able to work briefly on the actual ship remains and to meet the archaeologists who made the original discovery, Basil Brown and Charles Phillips. We found many fragments of famous treasures in the spoil heaps of the original dig and made some lovely friends in the process. Indeed, we are still in touch with one couple who met each other on the dig and married. We still try to meet up at Sutton Hoo when visiting Suffolk to discuss the good old days over a bite and a drink. Being trust members, we can enter the site free of charge, just as we did in the late 1960s. And finally, Rowena Wood in Norfolk reflects on her lifetime love of trees. I loved Ray Hawes's article on woods in the recent issue. I also grew up in the Chilterns. I adore beech woods and spent happy hours walking through woods at Cliveden. Now I live in Norfolk and instead of going to the coast, I'm drawn to the woods at Blickling and Felbrigg Hall. Receiving and reading your messages is a real highlight for the National Trust team, so thank you to everyone who contacted us. Please continue to stay in touch. You can write to us at The Editor, National Trust Magazine, Helis, Kemble Drive, Swindon, Wiltshire, SN22NA, or email magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. You can Facebook us at facebook.com forward slash National Trust or tweet using at National Trust. Now, before we wrap up this issue, it's time to hear about some of the events going on at National Trust places this spring. Joining me now in the studio is Sally Palmer to take us through just a few of them. Sally, as nature wakes up after such a long winter, people will be desperate to get out and about. There's loads to do, isn't there? What would you recommend? We have so much going on this year as we're celebrating the Trust's 125th anniversary. Without a doubt, one of the most beautiful sights of spring is that of trees in bloom. What better way of enjoying a spring day than attending a spring blossom festival? Oh, that sounds idyllic. Where is that taking place? Visitors can visit Brockhampton in Herefordshire between the 21st of March and the 22nd of May where they are welcome to stroll among the blossom of the Shropshire damson trees on a path through the orchards and enjoy guided walks, nature writing, 50 things activities and traditional crafts. Or staying with nature, why not have fun helping the garden team sow wild flowers in the meadow at Croft Castle and Parkland? You'll plant chamomile, poppy, corn cockle and corn marigold, so the bees will love it too. That's on the 15th of March from 11am to 3pm. That sounds great, Sally, but what about those of us who like to take it a little bit easier? Well, if it's relaxation you're looking for, what about trying Tai Chi at the Hidcote Garden in Gloucestershire? 
That sounds like a wonderful opportunity to try something new and in an amazing setting. Exactly. If you're keen, classes are being held on the 1st of February, 7th of March, 4th of April and the 2nd of May, starting at 9.15 until 11am. It's suitable for all ages and fitness levels. The fee for adults is £10. Call 01386 438333 or visit reception at Hidcott to book. Now, Sally, the National Trust is celebrating 125 years this year, but there is another big anniversary worth celebrating as well this year, isn't there? That's right. It's the 250th anniversary of William Wordsworth's birth. To commemorate this, you can visit a new exhibition called The Child is Father of the Man, which explores how Wordsworth was shaped by the events of his early life, focusing on ephemeral childhood objects. It's fascinating, isn't it, to focus on what shaped the childhood of such a wonderful poet. Yeah, I think it would definitely be worth a visit. It is taking place in Wordsworth House and Garden in Cumbria from Saturday to Thursday, from the 14th of March to the 8th of November. So you've got a good long time to go and have a look at that. So from one romantic to another, do you have any plans for Valentine's Day, Alan? I'm not sure, but I'm sure it will be something special. What could be more romantic than watching the stars with your loved one? At Dunstable Downs and the Whipsnade Estate in Bedfordshire, on Valentine's night, you can enjoy canapes, a drink and a chance to gaze at the stars. Tickets are £20 and can be booked on 01582 500920. That certainly sounds like a very special event. Finally, Sally, we can't really talk about spring events without mentioning Easter, can we? You're right. And this year there are 258 Cadbury Easter egg hunt events taking place across the country. Every visit helps us protect places for everyone to enjoy. Our partnership with Cadbury has helped us raise £6 million over the past 12 years. To find a local Easter egg hunt, visit cadbury.co.uk forward slash Easter. That all sounds amazing, Sally. Thank you very much. And I know that it's just a taste of what's going on up and down the country this spring. It's going to be a very busy season. Well, that's all from us this spring issue. I hope you've enjoyed it and do let us know what you think of this audio edition. You can email us at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk or you can call us on 01793 817 The National Trust magazine Spring 2020 was presented by me, Alan Power. The readers were Olivia Vinall and Glenn McCready. It was produced for National Trust magazine by Sound Understanding. All items are copyright. CDs of this audio edition are available to visually impaired members of the National Trust and are distributed by the RNIB. If you know of anyone who is eligible and would like to receive them, please call the RNIB on 01733 375 370 or you can write enclosing the membership number to Sales and Operations, RNIB, Midgate House, Midgate, Peterborough, PE11TN. This audio magazine is also available to download or stream as a podcast. You can access this and previous issues free of charge from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud and other audio platforms. For more information, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us for the next audio edition of National Trust magazine.